Good morning. Why don't we stand, those who are able, for the reading of Scripture, starting at Galatians chapter 4 and verse 12. Galatians chapter 4, verse 12. I beg of you, brethren, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You have done me no wrong, but you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Where then is that sense of blessing that you had? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. Have I therefore become your enemy by telling you the truth? They eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out in order that you may seek them. But it is good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner, and not only when I am present with you. My children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you, but I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Tell me, you who want to be under law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. This is allegorically speaking. For these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are uh, not in labor, for more are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise." But as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. So it is now also. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Father, what a great message, a message of freedom that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you reinforce that sense of joy and blessing and liberty that comes through the person of our Lord Jesus? Would you be with Tom this morning as he preaches? Would you make his words powerful in our ears? And may the Lord Jesus be lifted up, we pray. In his name, amen. Good morning. Now, this probably shouldn't carry a whole lot of weight with anyone, but i got to tell you, this is one of my favorite passages in Galatians, probably because of an Old, Old Testament major. It seems to be the passage that has prompted uh, the most painstaking analysis by Bible scholars and probably 
the, the highest volume of pages in commentaries of any passage in Galatians. But at its essence, it is a fairly simple and powerful proclamation of the freedom that we who believe in Jesus Christ now possess. Freedom from the crippling slavery of trusting ourselves to somehow lay hold a blessing from the hand of God. Freedom because the work has all been done already and we're not the ones who did it. This passage is about how God has freed us from our plan B, to use my brother Philip Borat's wording, because our plan B amounts to slavery. All right, here's a quick look at where we're going this morning. First, in verses 12 to 20, which many people handle as a separate passage, we're going to look at what Paul says about the loss of the sense of blessing that the Galatians were suffering as he was writing this epistle. And then we're going to see that he proposes a two-part solution. The first part in verses 21 to 31 is know that you have been set free. And the second part is knowing that you've been set free, stand firm in your freedom and forsake your former slavery. In verses 12 to 20, Paul presents a deeply personal appeal to his own spiritual children, the saints in these, in these churches throughout the region of Galatia, whom, in the, the churches that God had created through Paul and Barnabas years before. He begins in verse 12 by pleading with them most earnestly. He says, become as I am because I have become as you are. Douglas Moo explains this, this uh, plea of Paul beautifully and succinctly. He says, Paul has exchanged his life under the law for a life under the dominion of Christ, an existence no longer determined by law. How foolish for the Galatians then to be contemplating the opposite exchange, to put the law in place of Christ. After Making this, this plea, Paul then reminds these believers whom he dearly loves that when he first came and preached the gospel to them years before, they received him not just well, but marvelously well. When he first came to their sittings bearing the gospel, Paul apparently had an affliction, a physical illness. And he doesn't specify here what that illness was, but there's no question that it was visible to everyone And it was prone to make some people very uncomfortable. Now this may be the same affliction to which Paul refers in 2 Corinthians 12. And if so, it was given to him by God intentionally to to humble him after he had seen this amazing vision of, of the very dwelling place of God. Whatever the illness was, Paul says that the Galatians who came to Christ through his preaching received him without despising or loathing his physical condition. And far more than that, he says they received him as an angel of God, as Christ himself. That doesn't mean they thought he was God, that he was Christ, but they, he's saying, you received me as if I was Christ himself. Paul's effusive language here makes it clear that the Galatians could not possibly have received this bearer of the gospel of grace more graciously than they did. But things had gone badly south since then. Now Paul asked them in verse 16, 
Have I therefore become your enemy by telling you the truth? It's hard to imagine how hurtful it was to Paul. He's a pretty tender soul if you read 1 Thessalonians. To have these believers, his children in the faith, turning away from grace back to law and in the process treating Paul as if he were an enemy instead of the truest of friends. Paul reveals in verse 15 what had gone wrong, what was behind their betrayal of him at this point. He asks them a piercing question. He says, where then is the sense of blessing that you had? That question goes right to the heart of the matter because it exposes the hearts of the Galatian saints to whom he is writing. If these believers were still as amazed with the amazing grace that God had showered on them in Jesus Christ when they first came, heard the gospel and came to faith, the Judaizers would have gotten no traction with them at all. They would have booted those guys right out of their midst. When your daily life as a child of God ceases to be filled with the pervasive awareness of how incredibly blessed you are in Christ, Satan already has his size 20 foot in the door and he's headed in, not out. One of the most dreadful things that happens to you when you lose that marvelous sense of blessing is that your brothers and sisters in Christ who love you enough to speak the truth to you, start to look to you like enemies. And at the same time, those who are helping to rob you of the joy and blessedness that is your birthright in Christ start to look to you like friends. And those friends can be exceedingly persuasive. In verse 17, Paul gives us a little lesson from the Judaizers' playbook. He pulls back the curtain a little on the strategy used by these guys to draw the Galatians into their grace-denying error. He says, they eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out in order that you may seek them. It's the game of men-pleasing. They want to rope you into their joyless, graceless way of life, but they're very skillful at this game of theological seduction. First, they convince you that their take on things is authoritative. That they're speaking for God. That you need to be following their lead. And then they play hard to get. They convince you that you're not doing the right things to win their approval, so they withhold their approval. These false teachers were doing their best to convince the Galatian saints that they were authoritative, that they were speaking for the leaders of the mother church in Jerusalem. People like Peter, James... And the Galatians had been buying into that assertion, if you see what's going on in verses in chapters 1 and 2. Once the Judaizers had that hook of authority, of supposed authority, into these dear believers, they were quick to communicate their disapproval of the Galatians for not making a bigger deal out of getting circumcised and eating kosher food and doing the right Jewish things. Their appeal was not merely, you're not doing what's right. It was, we do not approve of you, so we're not going to associate with you. And Paul's appeal here contrasts with this strategy of the Judaizers like day contrasts with night. 
Paul earnestly asked the Galatians why they have withdrawn from him. He assures them that he's with them for the long haul. In verses 18 and 19, he says that he persists in seeking them in a commendable way, both when he is present with them and when he is absent. In fact, this letter is proof of his persevering love toward them. He assures them that he will continue to be in labor until Christ is formed in them. See, he's suffering and enduring the pains of childbirth, figuratively speaking, for these Galatian saints. Like a mother who has carried her baby for nine months, his heart is forever bound together with theirs. And Paul's not playing the mind games with them that the Judaizers are. His earnest love for them is not conditioned on their behavior. It is founded on their identity as his brothers and sisters in Christ, his fellow heirs with Christ. There's a critical lesson here for us. As Jesus taught in Matthew 18, withdrawing fellowship from a professing believer may become necessary, but it is the last resort for dealing with persistent intransigent sin. It's not the first resort or the second or the third. And even that very painful step of setting a believer outside of fellowship with the body of Christ must be done in a spirit of much humility, out of love for that brother or sister's soul. Never with an arrogant, condescending, how could anyone do what you're doing kind of a mindset. When our fellow saints are struggling with temptation to buy into bad bad doctrine, false piety, or even immoral behavior, our approach to them had better not be about men-pleasing. We better not use men-pleasing as an appeal to get people to change. In chapter 1 of this epistle, Paul said, if I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. He wrote that as a pointed jab against the Galatians. And he's saying to them and to us, if you make it your goal to please people, you will no longer be serving Christ. That's a principle we need to own, every one of us. Satan has a lot of tools in his tool belt for enticing us away from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. But one of his perennial favorites is to get us all hot and bothered about the approval or disapproval of people. Every time you return to the sense of blessing that you had when you first believed the good news that Christ died to do it all, that He alone has made you righteous in the eyes of God, you send Satan packing with his tail between his legs. And no, I'm not saying Satan has a tail. That's a figure of speech. So how do you do that? How do you get back to that pervasive awareness of blessing that you experienced when God first took the blinders off and brought you to faith in His Son? Well, it might help to notice how Paul deals with this problem right here in this passage. To lovingly nudge his children in the faith back to that original sense of blessing. He does it in, in two parts. The first part of his solution is for them to know that they have been set free. And the second part 
is to stand firm in that freedom and forsake their former slavery. In verses 21 to 31, these two parts are laid out. First, Paul presents yet another, actually the second, the second part of that is zeroed in in, in uh, the first verse of chapter 5. In Galatians 4.21, Paul presents yet another pointed question to set up his argument from the Word of God. He says, tell me, you who want to be under law, do you not listen to the law? He's saying, okay, so you Galatians, you want to go back to law keeping? The way the Judaizers are telling you to do? Are you actually paying attention to what the law is telling you? He then launches into an illustration involving two sons, two women, two covenants, two mountains, and two cities. Don't worry about leaving here with that list in your mind. Because you can boil Paul's whole lesson in this passage down to two mutually exclusive identities. One that is true of you if you're in Christ and one that is not true of you. If Christ has made you free, you are no longer a slave. And to live as one who has been set free, you have to put away forever that which formerly enslaved you. That's what this passage is about. Paul is bringing together themes here. He's bringing together themes that are introduced in the first five books of the Bible and then they're woven together throughout the whole Old Testament. I have a chart up here with two columns. Everything on the left side is tied together in one bundle. Everything on the right side is tied together in another bundle. And the two bundles are two radically different paths. One is the way of slavery and the other is the way of freedom. One is about sons of the bondwoman and one is about sons of the free woman. The bondwoman is Hagar, Sarah's handmaiden. Her son is Ishmael, whom Paul says was born according to the flesh. He's speaking, he's tying Ishmael and Hagar to the covenant of the, of the law. And so he mentions Mount Sinai, where the law was given. And he mentions the present Jerusalem, which he calls the place of slavery. The son of the free woman is Isaac. His mother is Sarah, Abraham's wife. Isaac was born, according to Paul, through the promise and according to the Spirit. The covenant to which Isaac is the heir is the promise to Abraham. The mountain not mentioned in the passage is Mount Zion, where the promise is fulfilled. The city is the Jerusalem above, the place of freedom. Now we could spend the rest of this hour just parsing out those details of the two bundles, and looking at a whole bunch of Old Testament passages. But I'm not going to do that. I'm going to keep it pretty simple because I'm simple-minded and because I want to focus on the real point of this passage. The connection of Hagar and her son Ishmael with Mount Sinai and the Law of Moses, it's about one fundamental thing. It's about the works that men do to lay hold of blessing from God. And the true story of Hagar and Ishmael is about what happens when we try to get our hands on God's favor and blessing by our own efforts. On the other hand, 
the connection of Sarah and her son Isaac with the Jerusalem above, with the promise of Abraham, is all about what God does that men could never do. It's about promise, not law. It's about the work of God, not the works of men. Now Paul begins his theology lesson in verses 22 and 23. He says, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. That radical difference between flesh and promise is what this passage is about. And then he launches into his extended metaphor about the the sons, the women, the covenants, the mountains, and the cities. But he actually tells us that it's a metaphor right up front. He says this is allegorically speaking. In the verses that follow, Paul is using people, places, and events that were known historically to illustrate the two identities that are at the heart of his theology lesson and at the heart of his exhortation that follows it. There are two statements in this passage that serve as bookends that bracket the metaphor at the beginning and the end. They explain the point of the metaphor. The first is in verses 22 and 23, and the last, the bracket at the end is in verse 31. The first statement focuses on the point of Paul's illustration. He says, just read it, Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman, one by the free woman. The second statement explains how the first statement applies to his audience and how it applies to us. See, the point of his illustration that is between verses 22 and 23 and verse 31 is in verse 31. So then, brethren, we who belong to Christ are not children of a bondwoman, but of a free woman. Now let me explain and give you a little context here. Most of you know the story of Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, Ishmael, and Isaac, right? Some of you may not. In Genesis chapter 12, when Abraham was 75 years old, God gave him the covenant promises of land, seed, and blessing. He would give him the land of Canaan. He would give him descendants. And he would bless him. He would bless him not only by making from him a great nation and giving him fame, a great name, but he would, he would bless all the families of the earth through him, through Abraham. But there was one serious complication from Abraham's perspective, and that is that his wife Sarah was barren. Do you know that that's the very first thing said about Sarah after she's introduced anywhere in the Bible? In Genesis 11, right after it says Sarai, that was before her name change, was the wife of Abraham, it says she was barren. She had no child. In Genesis 15, by the way, that happens a lot in the Old Testament, and God does something with it. In Genesis 15, God clarified his Genesis 12 promise a bit. He told Abraham that the son whom God, through whom God was going to create this great nation and bless all the nations, was going to come from Abraham's own body, not from his servant Eliezer or anyone else. And in Genesis 15, 6, 
It says Abraham believed in the Lord and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. He reckoned faith as righteousness. That's Abraham's justification. God declaring him righteous forever on the basis of his faith and a promise that is ultimately fulfilled by Jesus Christ alone. But ten years after the original covenant promises in Genesis 12, ten years later, Abraham's about 85 years old, and guess what? Sarah is still barren. So to help God keep His promise, Sarah told her husband to conceive a child with her female servant, her slave, Hagar. And Abraham, being a true son of Abraham, did, a true son of Adam, did what his wife told him to. And thus Hagar bore Abraham his first son according to the flesh, and that son's name was Ishmael. But in the very next chapter, Genesis 17, we fast forward another 14 years, and Abraham's now 99 years old. And guess what? Sarah still hasn't borne him a son. Women got married really early back then, so let's say Sarah got married at 16, and now it's more than 80 years later, and she's still barren. And not only had she never had a child, she couldn't have a child because she was postmenopausal. That's what Genesis 18.11 means when it says literally Sarah was past the manner of women. See, when God wants to make sure the credit doesn't get misplaced, He leaves no room for questions. There's a lot of times, beloved, this isn't in my notes, but there's a lot of times in your life and in my life when things look like they're going completely the wrong direction. And you know why God does that so often? He does that to eliminate any possibility that we think we did it. So we'll know He did it when He comes around and does it. He's the God of 11th hour reprieves. The longer you live, the more of those you get to experience. In chapter 17, God told Abraham that his now teenage son Ishmael would not be the son through whom the covenant promises would be fulfilled. And Abraham was not happy about it. God told Abe that the covenant son through whom the promise would be fulfilled was going to be born to his wife. Sarah. Abraham laughed so hard that he fell on his face. In the next chapter, Sarah found out that God intended to provide the covenant son through her, and she laughed too. So guess what God told them to name their son? Isaac means he laughs. Then when Abe was a nice round hundred years old, Sarah gave birth to the son of promise and they named him Isaac. And on that marvelous day, Sarah laughed again. But this time, instead of a laughter of unbelief, it was the laughter of great and surpassing joy. She said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. And her son's name was Memorial of God turning laughter of scoffing, of derision, to laughter of joy. Because of what He does. Not because of what we do. You see, Isaac, the son that God knew He would give to Abraham and Sarah all along was the son of promise, not the son of the flesh. 
He was not the son of Abraham's and Sarah's efforts and manipulations to secure for themselves blessing from God. That son was Ishmael. Isaac was the son whose conception and birth defied Abraham's and Sarah's efforts and manipulations. He was the son whose conception and birth proved that Yahweh is the God of the Gospel. He's the God of resurrection life. He's the God who creates life out of death. Isaac, the son born not according to the flesh, but according to the promise. And you know what, beloved? So are you if you belong to Christ. If you believe in the one and only Son of God, then verse 28 of this passage is talking directly to you. It says, and you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. Paul's point in this passage, as in so much of the rest of this powerful epistle, is that the life you now have in Jesus Christ has absolutely nothing to do with the works of men. And that includes your works. Your life is the miraculous work of God alone who delivers on His promises. And when He does, He brings life out of death. Because God gave you life by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you have been set free from your self-dependence. You've been set free from looking to your own works, your own efforts to somehow satisfy the righteous requirement of our holy God. Law-keeping is a realm that simply has nothing to do with your righteous standing in the eyes of God forever. It didn't justify you, it will not sanctify you, and it certainly will not glorify you. Now some may be thinking, but, but wait, don't we have to do good works as Christians? Absolutely. Does a street person who has been plucked out of poverty and despair and adopted as a son of a powerful and wealthy king have to do things that match up with that new identity? Yeah. But not in order to get that identity. Do you have to twist that man's arm to get him to do things that honor and please the king who rescued him in such an amazing way? Only if he's an idiot. Sometimes we're idiots. God saved us, and please don't send me email about misusing the word idiot. God saved us in order to make us a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. What do you have to do to make someone who's zealous for good deeds do a good deed? Nothing. God plucked us out of death and darkness and He recreated us in Jesus Christ for good works which He prepared beforehand that we should enter into them. Ephesians 2.10 But beloved, those good works are the effect of the gift of Christ's righteousness, not the cause. Good works did not, do not, and never will make you righteous in the eyes of God. If you have to doctor that statement up to accept it, you don't get it. You can take the phrase good works, capitalize the G, and drop an O, and you'll have it right every time. It's not good works that make us righteous. It's God works that make us righteous. 
Verse 27 is the beautiful set, setup for the alley-oop in verse 28. In verse 27, Paul quotes Isaiah 54.1. He says, For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor, for more are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. Now that verse is not about Sarah and Hagar. It's about God taking that which is desolate and making it abundantly fruitful. He quotes the verse to make a straightforward point about how God did things with Sarah and how He does things with us. See, the barrenness of a woman's womb is no barrier for the God of resurrection life. Because God's promises don't depend on men and women. Verse 28, Paul says, And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. So what's true of you doesn't depend on men either. Throughout the last two chapters, Paul has been making a distinction between law and promise. He's been making, he's, he's been declaring that that is a radical, mutually exclusive distinction. In chapter 3, verse 18, he said, if the inheritance is based on law, it's no longer based on promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of promise. That's how it actually works. Nothing about our righteous standing in the eyes of God, nothing about our sonship or our guaranteed inheritance has come to us through our efforts to keep the law of Moses or any other law. You know what those efforts actually prove? They prove that we're unrighteous. That we need God to do what only God can do. Our standing as children of Abraham, as sons of God, as sharers in the eternal inheritance that belongs to the one and only Son of God, comes to us just one way. Just one way. By means of a promise. The same promise that God gave to Abraham is the promise that Paul declares to be part and parcel of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And the perfect fulfillment of that promise depends entirely and only on God's character and God's faithfulness and not at all on ours. Ishmael's birth was the result of man's efforts to make himself blessed. Isaac's birth was 100% a miracle. God's doing to fulfill His inviolable promise. Everything that defines your identity, your reality, and your eternal destiny is true of you because of a promise that God revealed to Abraham nearly 3,500 years ago. But you know what? Abraham was a late comer to that promise. Because it was the same promise that God made to His Son in eternity past. Galatians 4.12 says, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed. That is, Christ. Before the world was ever created, God said to His beloved Son, In you, My Son, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. God never needed our help to fulfill that promise. Its fulfillment was signed, sealed, and guaranteed for delivery at the cross when God's Son cried out to His Father, 
it is finished. You and I who believe in Jesus Christ are sons of promise. You need to own that. That's a, that is a glorious thing. We're children of the free woman, not of the slave woman. We have been forever freed from slavery to dependence on ourselves and we have been delivered into the very freedom that will deliver all of creation from its slavery to corruption. The glorious freedom that belongs to the children of God. It's in Romans 8, verses 20 and 21. Paul immediately follows his theological discourse with a forceful exhortation in chapter 5, verse 1 that will set up a series of passionate exhortations in the rest of chapter 5. Verse 1 is where Paul moves from theology to application. He's told us what's true of us. That God has freed us from slavery to dependence on what we try to do to win His favor and blessing. And now, Paul is zeroing in on what the Galatians must therefore do in light of that truth. He says, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. In Galatians 4, verse 30, Paul quoted Genesis 21.10. In that passage from Genesis, right after the miraculous birth of Isaac, when Sarah caught Ishmael mocking the covenant son Isaac, she said to Abraham, Drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. Now there's little doubt that when Sarah spoke those words, her motivations were mostly selfish. But God told Abraham to do exactly what Sarah had pleaded with him to do. Not because she said it, but because God said it. He told Abraham to cast out the son of the slave woman. By the way, He blessed them as well in this life. My dear brother Phil Bort said something Wednesday morning that, that uh, really stuck with me. He said, faith casts out everything that doesn't belong. Faith doesn't look, it doesn't look for or long for some kind of synthesis or accommodation that leaves room for our good works as any kind of a basis to have a righteous standing in the eyes of God. Faith takes our plan B, the plan that gives us some kind of credit for our identity as sons of God and heirs of Jesus Christ, and it happily slides our plan B into the shredder, and then it takes those shreds and it puts them in, throws them into the incinerator until all that's left is ash, and then it scatters the ash to the winds. All that remains is plan G. Plan G is about God, grace, and gratitude. It's the plan of redemption for men and women who were lost and dead. It is the plan accomplished entirely by God because dead people don't have anything to offer. It is the gift of redemption and forgiveness and perfect righteousness given to us who deserved condemnation. It is the plan of redemption that ushers us into a life of overflowing gratitude. 
by which we now zealously offer up to our God acceptable service with reverence and awe. That's Hebrews 12.28. You want to know how to return to the sense of blessing that you had when God pulled you out of death and darkness and planted you firmly in the kingdom of His beloved Son? First, know that you have been set free. Free to find peace and rest and joy and power and purpose in your new identity as a child of God. An identity that was given to you by God's doing alone. And then stand firm. Stand firm in that marvelous identity as a free son of God and utterly cast away every enslaving residue of dependence on you. Dear Father, this is a, it's a beautiful passage that brings a whole lot of things from Your Word together. And, and each of us could study it for a long time. But Father, I pray that as we walk out of here this morning, we will have a very clear picture in our minds that You have, you have rescued us out of slavery to self out of slavery to sin, out of the, the hamster wheel of trying to make ourselves somehow acceptable in Your sight. All of those other six guys on that panel Monday night were talking about what we do to obtain the ultimate good, whatever they define it to be. And Your answer to us, Father, is that we don't do it. You do. Father, may we be crystal clear on that all of our days. May, be, may, may we proclaim that marvelous truth unapologetically to, to the people that You set before us. And may we rejoice every single day in our identity as sons of God, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen.